Hello and welcome to Match of the Year podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Today we're looking at a match that I have very mixed feelings about. And to sort of get in on this, you have to look at not only the battle between WCW and WWF uh, in 1996, 7, and up to early and mid-1998, but you have to look at ECW and the direction that wrestling as a whole was heading. We were at the start of what is now called, and I believe even then was starting to be called, the Attitude Era. We had the rise of, starting at King of the Ring in 1996, the rise of the Stone Cold Steve Austin era, which by 97 was full tilt. You had... Shawn Michaels coming on as the sort of big superstar. Uh, I believe he had already lost his smile. Uh, He really presented some amazing matches. And you had the emergence of mankind, Mick Foley, and this new sense that there was a new direction that the company was heading. The work was better. Shawn Michaels as your top uh, face and heel at the same time in a way, but more heel behind the scenes. Uh, Shawn Michaels was putting on amazing matches. You had guys like Owen Hart, uh, the British Bulldog. You had Steve Austin. You had Bret Hart in 97 until a certain screw job happened. You had the very early part of the career of The Rock, of course. And there are a lot of people who sort of don't get remembered today. You had Vader was around, and Vader had some great matches, including a couple with Shawn Michaels that were just spectacular. Uh, you had, a lot of people forget that Ken Shamrock was a big part of the company at that point. Uh, the Rock, of course, was starting his rise. So you had these sort of new people, a new idea. Now, Mankind and... The Undertaker, basically started feuding from the minute Mankind came to the WWF. And uh, it was the night after WrestleMania 12. And there was a match with The Undertaker. And I want to say, I can't say this for certain, but I'm fairly certain that The Undertaker used and had Paul Bear wheel out the casket before every match, and then he would come out and so forth. And then he was wrestling... Uh, JBL, then Justin Hawk Bradshaw, and I want to say Mankind emerged from the casket and attacked The Undertaker. I know that it was something like that. That led to some great matches. Of course, my personal favorite, the Boiler Room Brawl at SummerSlam 96. There were, they were on and off. There was the Buried Alive match. There was some time off from The Undertaker, and then he came back, of course. It was mostly 96, and I think it lasted into the early part of 97. And if not, it should have. Uh, What happened in the next phase was the fascinating part. Undertaker had come back at Survivor Series... 96 after I think he was gone for two maybe three months uh, after the Buried Alive match and 
he brawled and had a great set of things with uh, mankind. And then there was uh, a little bit with uh, Terry Gordy in his last time, real big push as the executioner, uh, which was, you know, fine. But the the real key to this entire thing was the sort of three faces of Foley. And because we had got this great series of vignettes, I want to say it was 97, maybe it was early 98, where we were introduced to Dude Love through the... uh, films from when he was a kid and was actually making backyard wrestling films uh, where he of course took the jump like Jimmy Snuka off the roof onto the uh, mattresses this all leads into two very big things one they were Undertaker and Foley were feuding again but Undertaker had been champion for a good part of 97 into 98 the best part of 1997 for me, and one of the truly disappointing matches or disappointing moments of a match not winning match of the year was Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker in the first Hell in a Cell match. It's an amazing match. It really is. It changed everything. And it's only looking at it now that it seems disappointing in comparison to what we've seen over the past, you know, almost 20 years now. At Bad Blood in your house, the moment that was absolutely just mind-bottlingly insane was Shawn Michaels being knocked off the side of the Hell in the Cell going through the table. And I want to read to you something that uh, is attributed to Uh, Mick Foley, I believe it's from his book. Uh, Yeah, I shot back. Then I could climb up and he could throw me off again. Man, that was a good one, and we were having a good time thinking completely ludicrous things to do inside, outside, and on top of the cage. After a while, I got serious and said quietly to Terry Funk, I think I can do it. In many ways, that sentence, more than anything, demonstrates why this match is such a dangerous moment in the history of wrestling. Because The Undertaker and Foley went into this match, and the very first thing, okay, not the very first thing, but incredibly early in the match, they go up onto the top of the cage, which is listing as... uh, as 16 feet. And I actually want to say it was probably a little bit taller. And the Undertaker threw mankind from the top of the cage through the Spanish announcing table. That's the opening of a match. That's nuts. That is absolutely insane. You cannot do that. The thinking before this happened. And, you know, without Jim Ross, this match is a stunt show. 
And in a way, Jim Ross turned it from a stunt show into what I kind of see it as, into a dangerous moment for the whole sport. The call, uh, good God Almighty, good God Almighty, that killed him. As God is my witness, he is broken in half. He's broken in half! And I remember watching this. This is... I, remember, I didn't get to watch it live. We didn't get pay-per-views at that point. I had a girlfriend who would actually tape them and then mail them to me. She'd give them, send me priority mail, $3.20 for each one, and it'd get to me the Tuesday. She'd send it on Monday morning, and it would get to me Tuesday. But I was on AOL, an AOL wrestling chat room. Oddly enough, another person who was in that chat room always, you, like day or night, uh, was, at that point, he was known as Aaron O'Grady, the leprechaun uh, in APW, and would later go on to be better known as Crash Holly. And we were watching, just blown away. We were, listening, we were watching the play-by-play that was being called in text form. And someone would have the pay-per-view and would be entering into the chat room. And we just, that was how I enjoyed many of the pay-per-views firsthand until I got that tape. And I remember thinking when I saw someone say, and this is a, the exact word, I'll never forget these exact words. Holy shit, the Undertaker just killed Mick Foley, tossed him off the cage into the table. How could you do that to someone? Now, Foley did sell this. Uh, they had the... Uh, Terry Funk came out, because he was in the WWF at that point. Uh, they had the paramedic crew come out, and they started to wheel him out of the arena, and then Foley got up from the stretcher and came back to the cage, climbing back to the top of the cell. This, that moment, almost as much as the bump itself being at the very start, is what's so dangerous. Because it's saying, even after the fall, even after a moment that should have ended any match, that you have to keep going, you have to give more. And Mick gave so much more in this match. It's, it is literally, I know a lot of people uh, beyond the mat very famously documented uh, Mick with the multiple head chair shots to the head by the rock. And yeah, I know that that's more dangerous technically because it's a direct impact on the head, but this was stupid. Because it took away a traditional build method and gave you something that should have ended a match. Something that, if it happened today, would more than likely end a match. But the moment happens... 
that that defines honestly Mick Foley to this day. And the guys were back on top of the cage. And according to Terry Funk, actually, I didn't know this until I was reading up on the match, preparing for this, uh, that the, the guy who prepared the cage had designed it so that the little fasteners would pop off and make it look like it was giving way under their weight. An Undertaker choke slams Mick on top of the cage, and the panel that, that Foley went on to fell through. And he went down into the canvas below. And he lands terribly. I'm watching it. It's today we get the feeling that it was the defining moment that Mick had gone out and said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a choke slam through the cage onto the mat below. And that's going to define my career. No, that wasn't how it happened. It wasn't supposed to go through. It was just supposed to land on the top of the cage. But instead he fell through. And he hit the canvas hard and he knocked himself out. And Jim Ross, Jim Ross said, stop the damn match. Enough's enough. And Mick, of course, Mick, Mick is such a professional and probably did himself and the business more harm than good and it's not his fault. He was doing what he could. He was making a living. At the same time, he was making himself a legend. And he looks at the camera and he gives the best Cactus Jack Manson smile. And you can see the tooth poking into his nose. I'm. This match ended, of course, with the Undertaker choke slamming Mick onto thumbtacks, and then hits the tombstone and pinned him. Mick needs some work, of course, afterwards, and it's and the crowd went. nuts for this. Uh, both wrestlers, of course, got a standing ovation. According to his book, Mick thought about retiring afterwards. And famously, I did not know this either because it's been so long uh, since I read his book, but uh, 
Vince apparently thanked Mick for all he had done for the company and then made Mick promise to never do anything like that again. Mick had a concussion. He had thumbtacks in his arm and he didn't even realize it. This is what wrestling became. That's so hard to understand. When you look at the history of professional wrestling, it has been, for up until very recently, it has been a constant growth of extreme elements, starting from a very legitimate, and of legitimate looking at least, contest between two men, typically. And it has evolved to get ever more theatrical and showy. And always there is the previous generation who is watching the new generation take things in a new direction to go more extreme, to go bigger. That, new, that first generation is always saying, you know, eventually we'll get back to actual wrestling. Wrestling as they knew it, as they understood it. Everything that has happened since King of the Ring 1998 has been a reaction to what happened at King of the Ring 1998. So many careers of people have been defined by what they see as the Foley mentality, by the belief that Mick getting chokeslammed through the, through the cage was a plan of his. Maybe not consciously, but at least unconsciously, to always give of their body so much. There are a lot of wrecked bodies in the history of wrestling. Um, some unbelievable, unbelievably tortured people. I'm, I'm not, I'm literally not over over stating it, I think. There are guys who torture themselves to get the adoration from the fans that they themselves felt for the guys who went out there before them. And in particular, Mick Foley. Mick Foley is, along with Shawn Michaels, and I would argue Chris Benoit, and Tiger Mask, of course, but but those three right there are the ones who have led us to where we are today in professional wrestling. Not only in the WWE, but around the world. It's a terrible, terrible thing to think. Like Mick has often said, you know, I can't jump high, but I can jump from high places. But when you jump from high places, you have to land. And that, that, that one thing is what so many people forget, is that once you land, that's when the rest of your life begins. And you're beginning a life where you've taken that fall, where you were that star. Where for a moment you were 
something bigger than yourself, but then you have to take the consequences of having landed. It's the oldest story in, in the world. It's, it's getting what you want, but the price you pay. And yeah, this is an emotional, emotional subject for me. People, literally people I have known and loved have gone into the business and have given so much of their body that there was nothing, there was almost nothing left. And the pain pill addictions and so many other problems have all come from the idea that you have to give more. You have to give the audience more. You have to be superhuman. But the whole time you're just human. And that's, that's a very, very scary idea. And this match, more than any other, I, I honestly believe that the ones that I'll be talking about on this podcast, probably the most influential matches of the past 25 years, there are, there are three. The latter match, which I'll consider as one between uh, Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. The Terry Funk, Ric Flair. Okay, that's more than 25 years now, huh? Okay, shunt that one. The, the most, by what I consider to be the most legendary WCW match ever, Eddie Guerrero versus Rey Mysterio. And there's a reason why that match in particular is so important and influential. It's because it showed for the first time on a big stage that you could do sort of this new lucha for an audience and they could not only appreciate it, but it can go beyond that level of just being a great match into an amazing match that defines something. And in a way, you also had the same thing from uh, Dean versus Eddie. But this was the one where it was on the biggest stage and where it made, it made people believe that Ray was you know, an important aspect in wrestling. And then this, the Hell in the Cell match between Undertaker and Mick. There are you know, other important matches, but this one, when you see the ladder matches today, yeah, it's a reference. It's all there in every ladder match today. There are references, either conscious or unconscious, to Shawn Michaels versus Razor Ramon. The story of what a ladder match is today was defined by those two matches. They formed the basis for what would come after them. But the idea that you have to give so much of your body that you have to be superhuman. You have to take that big bump. You have to put the match before yourself. Physically. That dates back to this. I really believe that. And Mick and Undertaker and Vince McMahon, of course, have a lot to answer for. They really do. And I think they all understand that. And I think Vince's, and I don't know if it's Vince or if it's uh, H, uh, I think Triple H understands better than most how much of your body you have to give. And he's and of the recent years they have been pulling back, and part of that, of course, is the new set of sponsors who want a tamer product. But really, what it comes down to, 
is they're saving people's lives by not asking anyone to take that choke slam through the cage again. ECW was around at this time, and it was just reaching, they had done their first pay-per-view in 1997. And by 1998, you were regularly having New Jack diving off balconies. Which was dangerous. Nothing nearly as dangerous as what Mick was doing here. But It definitely, this match increased the level so much. And Mick admitted that, you know, he feels like this made things more dangerous because it gave that idea that you had to go bigger and more extreme. ECW guys were doing it left and right, and some of them were really paying a serious price. A lot of careers were shortened. And a lot of guys who really weren't, and this will sound terrible, it's not a knock on them, but it's just true, a lot of guys who just weren't talented were having careers because they were willing to take the bump, because they were willing to jump from high places and land. Mick Foley is a Hall of Famer, without question. Any Hall of Fame of professional wrestling needs to induct Mick Foley. And I'll say the same thing for The Undertaker. The Undertaker, an amazing performer, and his role in this match was to be the platform off of which Mick jumped. Not literally, well, kind of literally. He did choke slam him, but... He provided the backbone of this match. Put it another way, Undertaker was the bone... But Mick was the meat. There would be no form to this match without The Undertaker. And the hat's off to him because he, he performed the hell out of this role. And he's, he's a consummate, he is arguably the most professional person who has worked in the WWE for the last 20-something years. He's amazing. He really is. And there are a lot of matches of The Undertaker's I do not like. Uh, I'll be talking a lot about the Shawn Michaels versus Undertaker matches and a little bit about Undertaker's role in changing the business. And he really has had it. He's reinvented himself like David Bowie more than once um, and in so many different ways. But this match, it made me question, not at the time, because at the time I was a rabid, bloodthirsty fanboy. Let's, let's you know, at the time we, they were called us the vampires as ECW fans. But this was not, you know, looking back and rewatching it after 2000, 2001. Actually, I can tell you the last time I watched this match before I started the podcast was 2003. And I had just started dating a girl who had a 
a young daughter. And she had sort of become sort of like a, a secondary stepdaughter to me in a way. And I watched this match. I think I had it on a tape of the best of Mick Foley. And I literally cried. Because I, I heard in my voice somewhere, in the back of my head, in the voice of Jim Ross, is Mrs. Foley's little boy. A human being did that to himself. But it wasn't just that he did it to himself, he did it to everyone who had ever thought about stepping into a ring. And that's a hard thing to deal with. And this match may be the pinnacle of stupidity in the history of wrestling. But it's so damn dramatic and compelling. Next time we're probably going to be talking about Shawn Michaels versus The Undertaker and a number of their matches. Uh, I hope you'll listen. And I hope it's a little less emotional. Just a little. Thanks.